The good news that we are reconcilers, the good news that we are to proclaim and talk is the good news that you have, that there is a cure for the sinner who is infected by the deadly sin epidemic. God in his mercy and love provided a remedy for sin, and that was the sacrifice of his son. Well, let's uh, turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I will be going from verses 16 to the end of verse 21. We concluded last week's message with being reconcilers of uh, I am commended to preach. And there are, some, there are a lot of things that we went over last week as far as our uh, command by God, things that we're called to do and why we should do it. We started off, by the way, first of all, by saying, well, a healthy fear of God. And not this fear or being afraid of type of a fear, but a fear of offending a holy God. A fear of what would happen if I didn't proceed my preaching of the gospel. A fear of wondering what would happen if I didn't at least talk to those that I love about what may happen. And we've been going through this process of a, a transformational change now for several years. And we've, we've adapted and we've adopted into our uh, call, into our church, a reformed uh, theological thinking, which is a little bit different than um, other churches or other people might think. And it's, it's basically what we've done in the past. We've, we've done this, but we're doing it now more intentionally, uh, specifically when we talk about God's Word and what God's Word means to us. And and uh, regardless of what we think it should mean to us, we take it verbatim, we take it, uh, it, it is God's word. And, uh, and if it's God's word, and if God said it, well, that settles it. Amen? There was a bumper sticker years ago that said, well, God said it, and I believe it. And uh, somebody, somebody else countered that and says, well, God said it, whether I believe it or not, that settles it. <laughs> you know? It was a, God said it, I believe it, so that settles it. And whether I believe it or not, it's settled. That's God's word. That's what it was. And, uh, and so that's, what we, that's where we're at. And I know it's not a popular teaching, but I want you to know that this is uh, biblical teaching. And that's where we are today. And as I said, we're commanded to preach. We are called to preach. We are, we are stated to, to bring out the message of Jesus Christ because that's who we are. That's why we were reconciled. We were reconciled, and that is helping people become something new, or helping people to get this new relationship going with their Creator. Because right now, we are plagued with a disease. And you know, if you think about just how a disease has been spread and how things have been going on, the earliest um, historical event of a disease that basically took over a lot of the world at that time, half of Europe, was annihilated was in 1347 where a mongol army what they did is they came and they attacked this fortress which is uh, or which was near the or at the modern day ukraine and the way they did this is they took people that had this plague this bubonic plague and had died and they put them on catapults and they launched them over the wall and this is a very graphic picture but the bodies would fall and explode and the entrails and the disease would spread rapidly the rats would catch it the fleas would catch it and people caught it and they took off to italy and it just spread like wildfire it was called the black plague or the black death and killed 
millions of people. Over 20 million people died, approximately one-third to one-half of Europe's population. And though it's probably one of the most famous plagues that have hit our world, the influenza epidemic in 1918 was another, 1819, uh, 1918 and 1919 killed an estimated over 50 million people as well. Uh, people died of this flu. Uh, there was an outbreak of typhus in Eastern Europe, other infectious diseases such as malaria, yellow fever, uh, and in more recent times, AIDS, that have killed an, an, uh, an uncounted millions of people and victims. Now, we know that Today, we have a, an epidemic as well, and they call it the COVID-19 flu. And worldwide, there's been at least 19 million, up to date, 19 million confirmed cases with 12 million people that have recovered. Uh, over 728,000 deaths worldwide in the United States alone, and this is just as this last week, 164,000 deaths due to this disease. Now, I share this with you because there is a disease that's even greater within our society, and that is the disease of death, and it's terminal. It's 100%. It kills, and it takes your body, takes your life. Sin that was brought into this world is taking lives every single day, spiritually as well as physically. And it's because of Adam's fall the plunge, that plunged uh, the whole human race into this uh, plague of sin. And, and people were, were sinners from birth. That's what we are. The Bible says from the very beginning, uh, we are sinners from birth. As a matter of fact, David lamented, and he said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin, in my mother's womb, I was conceived. In Psalm 58, he also says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. You don't have to teach kids how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to retaliate. You don't have to teach them how to be evil. It's just inside of us. We have this desire to be selfish within us. If you ever give something to a child and the first thing they do, what's the first thing they do? They grab it and they gravitate right toward their mouth. It's, it's a sense of, of self-fulfillment. It's a sense of self-preservation. And that's what kids are. That's who we are. We are so self-centered that we don't think of anything else or anyone else. And this is not something that has to be taught to children, taught to people. It's just who we are by nature. And, and not all people uh, are sinners by nature. They're also sinners by action. And, and when the things that we do, Paul says in Romans 3, there is none that is righteous, not even one. Uh, later in the chapter, he says, all of us have sinned. And have fallen short of the glory of God. None has not sinned. All have sinned. That includes your pastor. That includes the person that you can think of that is the most righteous. As a matter of fact, our righteousness, God declares, are like filthy rags unto God. No one can say, I have, a, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure, is what Proverbs 20 tells us. And the inevitable, inevitable outcome for all those infected by sin and this plague is death. That's just the way it is. God says, you sin, you die. And he told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you die. He's told uh, in, in his Ten Commandments, as we've been talking about, you sin, you die. This is the outcome of sin. But thanks be to God. Amen? Thanks be to God who has provided for us a way on how not to die, not only spiritually, but, also, not, but spiritually, but we do die physically. And, but sin, sin produces two, two uh, consequences. We get alienated from God. One of the things that happens because of our sin is we don't want anything to do with God. 
And the world that is so full of sin doesn't want anything to do with God. We've taken God out of every single institute, even our homes, our marriages. We've taken God out of our laws and our schools because we don't want that holiness in front of us reflecting to us that we are sinful people. Therefore, I would rather just stay away from that and I can do whatever I want. That's exactly what's been going on. A second second consequence of this sin nature in our life is that there is punishment, an eternal punishment, an eternal punishment in hell that is coming to us. And Jesus Christ said perfectly, he says in Matthew 25, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that eternal fire is not prepared for you. That eternal fire is not prepared for those that God has called. That eternal fire was created for Satan and his angels. And in Thessalonians, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see the good news. The good news that we are reconcilers, the good news that we are to proclaim and talk is the good news that you have, that there is a cure for the sinner who is infected by the deadly sin epidemic. God in his mercy and love provided from the very beginning, provided remedy, a remedy for sin, and and that was the sacrifice of his son. This is not an afterthought. This is not plan B. This is his provision for each one that he has called. And it says, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. See, God made the curse possible is the theme of verses 18 through 20 that we're going to go through right now. In those verses, Paul described the glorious truth of reconciliation, the responsibility that you and I have, the call that God has given us, the privilege that God has given us to join him in being these agents of reconciliation, that the sin-severed relationship between God and the unregenerated sinners can be restored through and in Jesus Christ. But reconciliation raises a lot of questions, and they're profound questions. And and this is the area that I'm trying to get us back on board and try to get us back in line with, because we we have this this idea that God is okay with our sin. We have this idea that, you know, God's a forgiving God. We have this idea that, that it's no big deal. Beloved, sin is a big deal. When you offend a holy God, it is a big deal. But we're told it's okay. I mean, it's all right. Don't worry about it. You're forgiven. You're not perfect. You're a work in progress. Uh, you know, you name whichever uh, statement your pastor or somebody else would say. Because the question is, how can an absolutely, infinitely holy God be reconciled to people like us, sinners? If you're full of sin which we are, and no one is righteous, which none of us are, and none of us seeks God, how can those two come together? Because God's law demands justice. It demands to be paid, and that needs to take place. How can his just and holy law be put together, which demands the condemnation of punishment? It demands it. How can those who deserve no mercy receive it? My problem is, and a lot of people's problem was, or or my problem was or is, is that we believe we deserve God, that we deserve mercy, because we get it every day. Everybody gets God's mercy, in a sense. 
There is this idea of a common grace. Everyone receives God's common grace. And so therefore, we all benefit from God's common grace. That's not saving grace. How can God uphold true righteousness and give me grace? Grace is that which we don't deserve, but he gives it to us anyways. And mercy is that, well, giving us what we, we, you know, we, we shouldn't get, you know? And it, but, but, but justice is what we all deserve. How can the demands of both justice and love be met? How can God be both the just and the justifier? In a lot of these questions, they, they seem to pop up. In verse 21 that we're going to go into, it answers that question. But first, let's talk about the reconciliation process in verses 17 through on. And let me just go ahead, 16 through on, let me go ahead and read that. Go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we're going to come back and fill out our outline and find some application for our life today. Thank you, Brother Ken, for praying that prayer. Thank you for not only recognizing that we want to hear things that we need to do, but help us and give us the strength to do the things that we hear we should do. Verse 16 reads like this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore, implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of scripture. As we expound on it and apply it to our life, help us to see how you are reconciling us to you and how we can be involved in the process of this ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors. We have been called. We have been sent out to share this message with those around us. Thank you once again, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's a big word, if. Huge words, a litmus test of the whole process of our salvation. You are a new creation. If you are a new creation, there is something to be said about this new relationship that I have, not only with God, but now with you and the world. There is something that has to be said about this new creation. This, and it can't be the same as before. I can't be created back into what I used to be. And this is kind of hard to tell in certain families that have been raised up in the church. There has to be a, an old and a new. Not that you have to send out your children into the world to become sinners, because they already are. You don't have to send them out there to, to be drunkards and drug addicts and you name it, to get saved and come back. But it's difficult to see that in a child's life or in a young person's life that grew up in the church. But it has to happen. As a matter of fact, this is what happened to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, by all rights, he was a, a righteous person, so everybody thought. And he came to Jesus Christ at night, and he asked Jesus, we know, Jesus, you're a man that comes from God, for nobody does the things that you do. And in that statement, Jesus looked straight in his heart, and he says, no one can come to the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
Nicodemus never asked him about the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't you know, say, how do I get to heaven? But Jesus hits you right in the heart. You want to get to heaven. You want to be a part of that. And Nicodemus says, well, what do you mean born again? How is it? Am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb, come back out again? Jesus says, very, very, I say unto you, unless you're born of spirit and water, you cannot be born again. And so the whole process of this discussion is what Jesus is saying, you've got to be a new person. And we recognize that newness of Nicodemus at the end of Jesus' ministry. He asks for, uh, for Jesus' body and takes him to the tomb. And he commits himself, and tradition has us, tells us that he committed himself as a changed agent. Change has to happen within your heart, within your mind, within your life. The way you looked at the world as to how you look at it now, you are now, if you are a new creation, the old has to go away. There has to be something visible, something tangent, something that people can see, not only people, but you, and, and of course, God knows your heart. You can give all the lip service you want, but if there's no actual change in your life, there's something that is not motivating you to proclaim and to share and to be this reconciler. This is what Paul is getting to. Now that you're an old, a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Sinners cannot be reconciled to him on their own terms. You cannot come to God and say, okay, God, I'll do it if. You know, or you know, if I do so many good works, or if I say so many prayers, or whatever the case may be, unregenerated people have no ability to appease God's anger against sin. Uh, the unredeemed people have no ability to satisfy His holy justice. Lost, depraved people have no ability to conform to His standard of righteousness. We cannot. There is no way that I can measure myself up to God. Now, I can measure myself up to you. And I can say, well, at least I'm doing better than those guys. Yeah, so people tell me all the time, hey, at least I'm being, doing better than this other guy. Everybody's doing better than that person. They're from Colton. Come on. Everybody is, I mean, you pick the worst person in the bunch. Oh, at least I'm doing better than that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so we lift ourselves up on our own righteousness. Amen. See, the guilty, you know, we're, we're, we're violating God's law and we face eternal banishment from his presence, and the deadly perception of the premise of this false religion that sinners somehow can just say a prayer. You know, okay, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it. If you say so, yeah, okay, God, I know you've been waiting up there, waiting for me to confess and to give my prayer. Let me go ahead and just take care of it now so you can stop bothering me, and I'll come back on Christmas, come back on Easter religiously. And it's that idea that all I have to do is just do that. Somebody said to me the other day, says, you know, I don't have to go to church to, to worship God and to love God, do I? My question to them is, why wouldn't you want to? Why, why don't you want to, especially after you know, and what we're going to talk about here in just a little bit, on what Jesus Christ did. He became sin, not a sinner. God unleashed the punishment of my sin. If it was just my sin, I'll tell you something, that would have been sufficient. But he did yours too. And he did those of the world. He unleashed it. If, you, if we were just to understand what we were saved from, you, everyone would make an effort to somehow get to Wherever church is popping up, I saw a worship service pop up at a Walmart. I don't know if you guys saw that on Facebook, but I'm thinking, I was thinking of doing the same thing, but I'm going to do it with the message, not a singing. But Stephanie will come out and sing as well. 
We're guilty of this deadly sin, this plague. We're, we're guilty of it. But God alone, he designed the way of reconciliation. Can somebody say amen? He put that together. He said, this is how I'm going to reconcile the world. It's God, the initiator, not me. Not by my prayer, not by raising my hand, not by saying, okay, not by working for it, not by paying for it, not by doing anything of that matter, shape, or form. It is God himself. God so loved the world that he made a way of reconciliation. He desired to reconcile sinners to himself, to make them his children. Such a desire is not foreign to God. That's his character. That's who he is from the very beginning of the foundations of the world. He told Adam and Eve, you eat that fruit, you're going to die. What happened? By all all purpose, God God could have just wiped them out right there. They were the prototype. They were the first ones. He could have said, you know what, next. I mean, before it all spreads all over the world, next. You know, I'll make, instead of Adam and Eve, I'll make uh, Sal and Linda. No, I'll make uh, somebody else. Maybe get another nationality, you know. But no, God, from the very beginning, he stayed his execution. He, I know a lot of people preach and teach and, and share that, well, they died spiritually. Yes, they did. But the death that God was talking about, boom, annihilation. You're out of here. And at a point after so long, at the time of Noah, God just says, you know, I just, you know, I just, I'm ready to wipe this whole generation out, this whole world. But he saved grace, grace. And then after after Noah, uh, more grace and more grace. People say God changed his mind, didn't destroy everybody inside of him. It's grace. Continued grace. And from the very beginning, God has always been a gracious God. From the very beginning, from the foundations of the world, from Genesis to Ezekiel, he says, I will seek the lost back. I'll bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and the strengthen the sick. He says uh, in, in Romans chapter 5, he says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. God's wrath is coming to those that will not give allegiance to God. It is God's plan through Jesus Christ that we owe this gratitude. And I'll tell you, if, if we just can get a glimpse of what he's done for us, nothing can keep you from worshiping God. We would, we would be here in droves. And, and many people are starting to catch that now. I mean, this can be taken away from us, and I'm going to do whatever I can to get there and do what needs to be done. Paul says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is not something that man does, but it's something that he receives from God. It's not what he accomplishes, but what he embraces. It's Reconciliation does not happen when man decides to stop rejecting God. It's what happens when God decides to stop rejecting you. God says, okay, you know, you were my enemy. Now, the grace that I'm going to give you, I'm going to give it to you. It's not something that you can pray for. See, dead people can't do that. His hostility has been removed, and there's this relationship that can't keep you from worshiping him, no matter what the situation is. Reconciliation occurs because God was graciously willing to design a way. He did it through Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
So it is a design by God. God designed it from the very beginning. He says reconciliation, number one, is designed by God. Yeah. Amen? Number two, reconciliation is delivered by God. Reconciliation is delivered by God. That is, he says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The phrase, reconciling the world, must be understood as not teaching universalism. In other words, people take this verse and say, you see, he's reconciling the whole world, the cosmos. And if that were the case, then everybody gets to heaven. And those that don't want to preach a Jesus or a God that's wrathful and vengeful and, and not only just gracious and forgiving and loving, they, they want to preach a heaven but not a hell. They want to show that God will, nobody's going to get punished. As a matter of fact, you go to any funeral, I don't care who it is, you go to any funeral and they'll always tell you that he's up there looking down on us. She's up there telling God what to do, just like she did around here. And she's up there wagging her finger at God and at the angels. And God is saying, okay, things I have heard. And, and they are always in heaven. As if all you have to do is die. And it, ha it can't be understood as universalism. And there are churches, there are a universal church, you'll see it, universalism, and they'll teach that, that everybody, anybody can get into heaven. It doesn't matter, because God's okay with your sin. God's okay with that, because he knows that you're not perfect, and you're a work in progress. If God had reconciled the world, universalists simply argue that the barrier between God and man has been removed for all, and everyone will be saved, because Jesus died on the cross. As a matter of fact, there are verses that they used to back that up. John the Baptist. So the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. Hey, well, that means demons are going to be up there because they believe, as the Bible teaches us. You see, the Bible calls uh, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So we have to come to grips with that. Is the Bible teaching us universalism? Does it mean that everybody, the whole world, that everybody gets to get in? All you have to do is say, okay, I've done it. And so we have to come to grips with that and start to work with that. And it's, it's hard to, to get that and to reconcile that somehow. It's, how does that happen? How does that work in my life? How does that work through the Bible? If Christ paid the penalty for everyone's sin, uh, how could God sentence people to hell? I mean, he's, he died for everyone. How was it that he's going to unleash punishment on whom? If he died for everybody. And if he did not pay for the sins of those who are eternally lost, then what is the sense that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself? Well, there is a dilemma, and there seems to be, when you take it out of context. You have to look at everything else that Jesus Christ is saying. One of the things that I just recently did is I started to refresh myself uh, with the Greek language. And the Greek language has been uh, kind of bothersome to me, you know, only because my thought has always been, why do I need to learn Greek? Or why do I need to translate it? Everything's already translated anyways. So just get a commentary. Just get a book. Just, you know, it's already there. I mean, you know, it's already written that way. But, but this, this last week, I'm looking at, okay, well, you know, how does God choose us? Because I'm, I'm talking about all this. Uh, eklomai. 
Eklomia. Eklomia is, is the word choose, and that's the word that's used over 20 times in the New Testament. And every time it's used in the sense of salvation, it's always Jesus Christ or God doing the choosing. Mark 13, 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, he's talking about the time of the rapture, the time of the tribulation, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. He chose you. And, and when day came, he calls disciples and chose from them 12. Okay, well, they were apostles. Of course, he would choose his team. You know, he's not going to choose everybody. Okay, well, that's true. But Jesus Christ even said later, he says, you see, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled that even the son of perdition will die. The Judas was chosen as well. You did not choose me. He says, I chose you and appointed you. He says, to bear fruit. In John 15, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as it is its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's a chosen people. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 24, in the process of choosing another disciple, because Judas is gone now, what, what they do is they, they pray and they say, you, Lord, you. Jesus Christ, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen. And even though the lot fell on Matthias, it was God who did the choosing of that person. I mean, and as we get further into the New Testament, Paul says, but God chose, <laughs> I like this, what is foolish in the world. Praise God for that. Amen. Can foolish people say amen? <laughs> God chose what was foolish in the world. To shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In 1 Corinthians, verse, the same chapter, verses 28 and 29, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And I think the one verse, the book that really nails it all for us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as... He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him from the foundations of the world. James even says, listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those whom He loved? Eklomai is not anywhere else except for in that sense. One of the things that I have found, one of the things that I realized, one of the things that I've been listening to is, well, the Bible says, for God so loved the world, that whosoever believeth, exactly, the world, the cosmos, people, and whosoever believeth. But you can't believe if you're dead. You can't believe unless you're chosen. You know, this is how most people read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever chooses to believe will be saved. And whoever chooses not to believe will not be saved. And there's always this insertion of a word that changes the, of course it does. There is something very peculiar about how the Bible is written for his chosen people. Beloved, I want, to know, I want you to know something, that if you understand this concept, if you grasp it and hold on to it, it doesn't matter what happens. Can I get an amen? It doesn't matter what, what kind of... Right, Cece? COVID, recovery. Hey, whatever happens, happens. 
Amen. Ben, COVID recovered. Hey, whatever happens, happens. I mean, you know, we, we were all just, whatever happens, happens. And because God is totally in control of all things, I personally have to believe that God is in total control of everything. If one molecule is out of whack in the universe, then God cannot be in control of everything. Because that molecule is up to doing whatever it wants. God is totally in control. See, Christ's death, actually, what happened is he, he took on he, he took on all the sins of those who believe. And God determined from all eternity that those who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Look at it in Ephesians 1.4. I read this a little while ago. Even as he chose us in him from the foundations of the world. In, in Revelation 13, all who dwell on earth will worship the false beast or the, the, the image. Everyone who has... Uh, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb will be slain. If your name is written in the book of life from the foundations of the world, God knew you would be saved. God knew who you were. God knew exactly where you would be at. And you know, the, the interesting thing, at least in my part, God took all my stupidity into account. <laughs> he took all the dumb things I was going to do into account and called me anyways. And I know a lot of us can say amen to that, right? Amen. See, God, he, he designed the atonement of Jesus Christ to, to, to be efficient for those people and actually pay the penalty for their sins alone. And again, I know it's difficult to kind of grasp that. and say, How does that happen? I mean, I thought he died for everybody. Well, if he died for everybody, then everybody's saved. Well, you have to believe, but how do you believe? You have to have faith. Well, how do you get faith? Well, God gives it to you. Does God give faith to everybody? Well, and that's what we're walking through. And it's a process. It's a learning process. Yeah. And for me, it's been taking over 10 years. And for me, it's been taking some time to, to process this through. Not that I didn't understand it. Somehow at the very beginning, I had a very, I don't know, God-ordained insight on God's Word. And I was teaching a Sunday school class. And my second or third year as a brand new Christian. And as I was teaching on Romans chapter 9, and, and where Paul says, you know, for this reason, I raised up Pharaoh. You know, I, I'll have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. And I said, just, you know, matter of factly, well, you know, it's like God chooses some to go to heaven, God chooses some to go to hell. Now, my thinking has changed, okay? I mean, not changed, but it's evolved on this whole process of how it works out. Okay, but, but don't take me word for word here. And so anyways, it, it erupted a discussion. And we, they're discussing, everybody's yelling. And I said, okay, I, I just, God knows who's going to heaven. He knows who's not. That's all I'm trying to say. Well, on Monday morning, I go into my pastor's office and says, hey, pastor, I had a problem on, on Sunday morning. He goes, yeah, I know. I know you did. <laughs> well, what happened? Everybody's calling me, telling me, what did you do? You know? And I told him. And he says, well, I'll tell you what. Here, take these books, take these verses, read this, understand that. And, and at that, from that point forward, we never talked about it again. And I just kind of like, I don't want to cause any... St I'm just a brand new Christian here. These guys have been going there for years. And I'm trying to, and he's teaching something false and all kinds of stuff. But the point that I'm trying to make is somehow instinctively, I knew that God is totally in control. I just have to believe that. And how that works in soriology at the end times, uh, salvation, in, in eschatology at the end times, how all that works together, it's, it's the, the one thing that, that seems to be having a lot of discussion. And there is a lot of discussion. How is it that free will and, and uh, election come together because there is free will and, and there is election and how does that how does that work together it's not both and it's not both and but it does work together 
And you'll have to wait till next week to get the answer on that one. I won't have the answer next week either. <laughs> As one theologian says, he says, you know, here's how it happens. He says three words, I don't know. Just like I don't know about the, the Trinity, I know the Trinity exists. I see the scriptures on it, and I see it, but you have to look at how God chose, how God elected, how God has, and, and that is all through Scripture. Nowhere am I told to receive Jesus Christ. Nowhere am I told that I can choose Jesus Christ. Nowhere am I told to, to and, and we have this portrayal as Vody Buckham, had, had a good preacher, modern-day theologian. What he said, he says this, he says, you know, we have developed a sissified Jesus a Jesus that is needy, a Jesus that is up there saying, oh, please, choose me, please, I want you to get out of this sin. And, and, and as he's calling this out, he says, he says, Jesus don't need your permission to save you. He'll save who he wants to save, and that's it. He doesn't need your permission. And it's, that's the way he does it. Now, as we go through this journey, and you know, you might have some questions. Please contact me. Those of you on Facebook, reach out. Those of you in here, reach out. Let's let's talk about this. Don't just throw it all up in the air. Well, that's not what I believe. That's not my God. That's what I just heard recently. Uh, think about this. Let's discuss this because it has a, a very profound implication on the rest of your theology. And what we've been doing the previous 10 years, as opposed to the last 10 years, is we have been growing, and now it's a matter of maturing. It's a matter of getting deeper into God's Word. Okay, so why does it say this, and why does it say this? How do you put those two together? And so we're, we'll mature, and, and you know, you may come away from that by thinking, you know, I, I just don't, I still don't see it. That's okay. I'm not going to kick you out of our church. No, it's, that's not what we do. We want you to grow. And if diving into God's Word can help you to grow and still come up with a different conclusion, that's okay. But it has profound implications on the rest of your theology. It does. Because none of it is under your control. Can somebody say amen to that? You don't control God. You don't tell God what to do. God is the one that says yes and no. And thank God for your guys' testimony. Because he's saved you guys, and, and he's provided for you guys. And I, as I said here a while back, why did he do that? Let's use that for the kingdom of God. Amen? Number three. I think. I think I lost my place. Reconciliation is by, de- by determined obedience. Reconciliation is by determined obedience. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The way to be reconciled to God is by obedience of faith. Total obedience. We are to follow through in faith, in obedience. And this is the part where there is human responsibility. This is where I have to respond. This is where, as God is showing me, I respond. And there's that tension that we were talking about a little little while ago. So how does that work? I, I thought you said, I, I just get saved. No, there's got to be that tension. There's got to be that, that draw. It's, it's like birth. It's like being born again. It's painful. It's, it hurts for the mom and the mother and, and the child and, and the cry and all that tension that happens at the time of birth. But you know, when it happens, you have a new creation. It's not just one, it's two. It's those that birthed and, and those that gave birth and, and the one that was birthed. 
And therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. You have been called to go out representing Jesus Christ. Ambassador comes from the word pruspas, which means elder or old. We use that word for prosputeros, the elders of the church. And it's usually somebody that's a little bit older, that has, has wisdom and has the ability to discern and see things, things that they have done in the past, things they wish they would have done different. Here, I am the ambassador. I'm sharing with you on what this reconciliation looks like. And, and that's our modern-day ambassador, in a sense. We, are, uh, that we have ambassadors that go out to different nations, and they represent the United States. And they have to represent accurately. Otherwise, they're going rogue. Don't get me started on that. For Romans 10, 13 and 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they be called on? Or how then uh, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God is doing the reconciling, but he wants to use you in this plan that he has put together from the beginning of the world. For God, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's what we do. And Paul writes to the Philippians, and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So how am I supposed to be re reconciled? How, how does that work? Last week, I shared a little bit about how am I reconciled. How is that to take place? Number one, he identified those who believe. He identified those who believe. Verse 21 again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I said last week, these are 15 words in the Greek, 15 words that are a jewel. Most, a lot of the theologians that I've been reading and talking, uh, not talking to, but reading and discuss, uh, going through a lot of the material, they take these 15 words and says, if I had nothing else, this is the verse that I would use. This is the verse that I would, I would hold everything on because this identifies what Jesus Christ did, what God did, and what the Holy Spirit empowered him to do so that we could be identified with Christ. And that's what he does. I shared a lot of that already with you. He identifies those who believe. And in this process, for our sake, our sake, those that he's called, those that he's redeemed, those that he's already chosen, those that he says, I, I chose you, you didn't choose me, those that he died for. He says, it's for our sake, Paul says. And, and, and he says, to those who, who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16, I read that a little bit ago. And then 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Matter of fact, in, in uh, Romans 10, he says, because if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How do you get this belief? How do you get this ability to say that? How do you do that? Well, God gives it to you. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Over and over and over again, Jesus says, I'm the one. God's the one. The Holy Spirit's the one that is leading, guiding, choosing, pulling, bringing in. Number two, he imputed my sins on Jesus. You're going to learn a theological word today. To impute means to put on or to give to or to to apply on. To impute. This is the, the doctrine of imputation. Of imputation of what God did to Jesus Christ. Not that he made him a sinner, but because Jesus Christ was perfectly, perfectly sinless. But what he did, what God did, see, this sin that is laid upon my heart, that, that I have done, that I have committed, the, the, the sin that is totally separating me from God, and I have every right to be destroyed. And, and I don't know if you've ever said this, or somebody said this to you, well, you deserve more. Please, always respond, you don't realize what I deserve. I don't deserve anything, but only by the grace of God, yeah. only by God's mercy yeah. am I able to stand here, only by His grace. Because I am a sinful person. Just If you can read my mind, if you can hear my voice, if you can, the, the things that I think, the things that I say, I mean, they may not be perverse, and they may not be uh, that, as some people would say, sinful, but just sometimes my thought process isn't on God. Let me show you how you sin. And you do this every day. Because the greatest commandment, the one thing Jesus Christ wants you to do, the one thing that they, somebody came up to him and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? What's the one thing in my life? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God with every fiber of my body is virtually impossible. I can't. I'm thinking about the project. I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about my grandchildren. Not that any of those things are evil and inherently evil in themselves, but what it does is it takes my mind off of God. If Jesus said that's the greatest commandment, then that's the commandment I break all the time. Because it's just, now, but does that mean that I give up? No. My question is, why aren't I doing that? Well, as Paul said, you know, I would rather you be single like me instead of being married with all the worries of the world. But if you're single like me, you can focus on the ministry that God gave you. Not that I would change that any. <laughs> Let me stop right there. My wife understands. She knows. She believes me. She, she would rather see you, you go into the ministry. Amen. Just don't forget where you live. <laughs> Reconciliation is his plan. And he says, I've got to, this, this sin has to be paid. Yeah. It has to be dealt with. It's got to be taken care of. The problem is, is that we have people in our world that, you know, it's okay. It's no big deal. God is forgiving. Yes, he is. And he's, because he's imputed, he's given, he's applied, he's put on to Jesus. These things that, that, only, that only he can take on himself. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be. The religion of human achievement, which was of that day, whether practiced by Jews or Gentiles, could never bring reconciliation. Everybody wanted to do it on their own way. You know, yeah. maybe I, I follow a bunch of laws, and, and the Gentiles and the pagans, they said, well, you know, I'll just work at it and, and sacrifice myself and give to the gods, and maybe I can appease them. God says, no, the only way that can be done is through one perfect sacrifice. 
And that sacrifice has to identify with you. That's why the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the only perfect sacrifice. So Jesus did not go to the cross because people, fickle people turned on him. Jesus didn't go to the cross because people got upset at him and stopped feeding them. He didn't go to the cross because demon-deceived false religious leaders plotted to kill him, which is what happened. But that's not why he went to the cross. He he didn't go to the cross because Judas betrayed him or because Peter denied him. He didn't go to the cross because people got mad at him and the mobs just turned on him. Jesus went to the cross because that was the plan of God. From the very beginning, that was the plan of God. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he knew that was the sin that needed to be taken care of. Colossians 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Qualified, he qualifies us to share the inheritance of the saints that in, in the light. Romans 5 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10 of the same chapter in Romans, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This ministry of reconciliation, of getting us together, of putting us together with God, of of bringing us, has been working in your life from the very beginning. Either your mom has prayed for you, your grandma's prayed for you. I've heard a lot of testimonies of you guys being, some of you guys being raised up in homes, people coming to you, sharing the good news with you. And and in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the emphasis of a loving God reaching out to sinners. He is a loving God. He is a forgiving God. And he shows his grace and his mercy to those he displays his mercy on. That sets Christianity apart from all false religions of the world. That sets us all apart from anything else. And number three, he instructed Jesus to take my sin. This is the substitute. This is called the substitution atonement. He instructed Jesus Christ to take my sin. Okay, Jesus, here's what's going to happen. Really, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way? If there's another way, take this cup from me. But not my will, Jesus says. Your will be done. If this is the only way, and God says, this is the only way. God didn't send angels to show us how to get to heaven. He didn't write a book to show us the steps that we had to go. He sent his son to die in my place and in your place. Only one who knew no sin can actually be the sinless sacrifice of God. Only one. For in, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are in the human flesh, yet without sin. And then in chapter 7, he says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. From the very beginning, he was the plan. 
from the very beginning. Christ was not made a sinner, as I mentioned, nor was he punished for any sin of his own. Instead, the Father treated him as if he were a sinner by charging to him and his account the sins of everyone else. All those sins were charged against him as if he had personally committed them. And when God did that, he took that sin of mine and put it on him, and that righteousness of Jesus Christ, he put it on me. I can stand righteous before God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And it's, it's important to understand that the only sense in which Jesus was made sin was by that imputation, what he placed upon him. He was personally pure, yet he was officially guilty. He was guilty, even though he was pure. Personally holy, yet all the evidence pointed to his guilt. By dying on the cross, Christ did not become evil like we are, nor, nor did he be uh, redeemed seemers because, you know, we're holy. He didn't save us because we're good, but he saved us because he's good. And the last thing I want to share with you is that he initiated me into righteousness. He initiated me into righteousness. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've become the righteousness because of what Jesus Christ did. This verse takes the whole cross and everything that Paul has been teaching and preaching into one concise 13 words in the Greek literature. And it takes it and it brings it to us in such a nutshell that expounded, it brings light and life and understanding of what God did for us. Not because you're good, not because I'm holy or better, not because of anything, but because of God. To show his unsearchable wisdom, his unreachable uh, understanding, his glory to the, the heavenly realm. He did it for his benefit. He did it because to express his love to me, to you. In Romans, Paul says it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and justify and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Paul concludes this portion of Scripture in such a way that it brings us to the gospel message and what it actually means and what it is that Jesus Christ did for us. He became sin for us. He has from the very beginning. God says, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this, and I'm going to show the world and the heavenly realm on what it is that I'm doing in this whole process. See, see, when we as sinners acknowledge the fact that we are sinners, and we affirm Jesus Christ as Lord, and, and, and trust totally in the completed work of what Jesus Christ did on my behalf, then what God does is he credits his righteousness to my account. My balance is now paid in full. It has been satisfied. It has been propitiated. That which God demanded has been taken care of what Jesus Christ took care of. That is how we can stand here in front of a holy God. Not because of anything we do here in this church, in our life, but because of what Jesus Christ did. Our ugly life was legally charged to him on the cross as if he lived it, so that his righteous life could be credited to our account. That is the doctrine 
of justification by imputation. The high point of the gospel. This is how the plague of sin is dealt with. Let me ask you to stand. Christ was made sin for me. Instead of treating me like the sinner that I should be, that's what he did to Jesus Christ. He charged my account onto him. And by imputation, he took his account, put it on me. And all those who were, who were uh, charged with sin are now able to be removed from sin. My response is to say and to do, why, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I come to, to church? Why wouldn't I pray? Why wouldn't I read? Why, why wouldn't I become that agent of reconciliation, that ambassador, that high calling, not as a pastor, not as a Sunday school teacher, but that high calling to share this with people that are literally needing to hear this? It takes obedient faith. And that's what we are called to do. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this portion of Scripture. I know that we ran through a lot of it, but God, I know that through your word, as it is proclaimed and it is read, would be a change agent in everyone's life. Lord, I know that I personally could not do your word justice. And I, I pray that I, uh, if I can just read your word and leave it at that, I, I know that your Holy Spirit can, can change the lives of people. But you've called me to be a herald. You've called me to be a messenger of reconciliation. You've called me to be an ambassador. And therefore, Father, I pray that, that as we go through each lesson and each Sunday and each portion of Scripture, that your Holy Spirit remove this imperfect vessel and take your perfect word and embedded deep in the hearts of your people. And I pray, Father, that you continue to do so in every step of the way. So, Lord, take that word and germinate it within our heart as it sprouts and bears fruit, and it brings others closer to you. There are people around us that need to hear this message. Give us that power, that ability, and the wisdom to be able to share that with others. Thank you, Lord, for just giving us this peace and this, this ability to be able to come together here for providing for us this facility, for protecting and watching over us and giving us the, everything that we need to continue on in the ministry of reconciliation. So, Father, dismiss us now from this place, but never from your presence. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody says, Amen, amen and amen. amen. All right. May the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen? Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you, Pastor. Thank you, brother.